to another Medicine360 podcast, where we explore the relationship between the humanities and medicine. My name is Ellie Harrison, and I am a medical student studying at the University of Bristol. This week, our discussion will be focused on the socio-economic class divide in medicine, a subject with a personal importance to me, having attended a low-achieving state school before then completing the Gateway to Medicine Foundation year here at the university. My guest this week is Dr Gail Nichols, Director of Admissions at Leeds School of Medicine and recent winner at the NEON Awards for her contribution to widening access to medicine. I want to say a massive thank you, Dr Nichols, for coming along and and having a a chat with me about all this. And yeah, as a conversation as a whole, I think um, I'm quite nervous about doing it justice, but I'm also nervous about even this bit doing it justice. So maybe you'd like to um, introduce yourself and say a little bit about your role. Of course, I'm happy to. So um, I am Head of Admissions at the School of Medicine at the University of Leeds. I'm also on the Medical Schools Council Selection Alliance. My background is as a GP, but I'm now um, solely involved in medical education. And I've been involved in um, admissions and widening participation for the university for over 14 years now. So I've got quite a background in it. I'm part of obviously the various national networks associated with uh, widening participation. Fantastic, yeah. So more than qualified to give some perspectives on on the topic. So I guess we'll just dive straight in and and ask the the question: social class divide in medicine or classism, if you like, does it exist in in, in your eyes? We need to be very conscious of the fact that there are different barriers for different cohort groups coming into um, undergraduate medicine. And um, those from particular backgrounds, be it, uh, and there are different names, aren't there, for, for and different terminology used for different cohorts. Um, so those from a disadvantaged background, be it related to socioeconomic or specific class measures or postcode and different uh, low progression ward areas, there are different barriers for them both entering into undergraduate healthcare and specifically medicine programs and the ongoing work as well into their progression and the point of graduation and success as a career as a whole is further debate and area for um, exploration in addition to the uh, barriers face of entry. And I guess you've touched straight away there on, on one of maybe the many, as you say, complexities is that how do you identify you know, the line between what makes medicine exclusive to a certain type of person, say? Unfortunately, we're driven by um, our key stakeholders. We are driven by the measures that they are um, using to determine success or failure in different arenas. And so these measures aren't constant and these key performance indicators change over time. So we have got different contextualized admissions tools that we can search for. Um, We have postcode related tools, we have individual measures that are very specific and individual centric for a student, whereas there are collective and regional measures, there are school measures. So there is no one individual measure that identifies 
that group and there is diversity in any term that you use. So whilst there might be collective terms, each individual tells their own story and each individual has their own barriers and facilitators within their education that have got them to that point in time. Absolutely. You mentioned a few of them then. So some of the tools that have recently been used um, to maybe identify certain groups that have been missing out. Many of these are quite recent initiatives, aren't they? And I wondered if maybe on a more positive note to start with, we could talk about some of the recent progress or new things that we've been doing to to encourage participation. Yes. So I think um, one thing is about identification. The next thing is about intervention and support. And I see it as a jigsaw. So there are some strategic things I can do. So there are things that go right back to um, looking at, is there any inherent bias in any of our processes, in our uh, policy making, in any of our offer making procedures? Is there any bias, for instance, in the type of subjects we're asking people to come into university with the grades that we're asking for. So it's challenging that strategic element of what we do. It's um, measuring where there are difficulties for individuals and then trying to put interventions in place. So some of those are academic. Um, So we have made huge um, inroads across the country into this regarding lower offer making for some of the contextualized admission schemes that sit alongside five-year programs and then of course there's just been a massive number of new courses developed that are six-year widening participation or access programs and that is a very successful way of supporting people into education because it's not just about the academic boundaries about the other non-academic skills and attributes that are required and also about the support to transition from school or college learning into undergraduate learning which is very different some of these six-year programs can help build not just knowledge and academic areas but those non-academic areas to really allow students then when they get onto year one of programs to probably be ahead of the rest of the peers coming straight from school and college a lot of it is about identification and about as i said interventions around the um, different types of admissions route but then also about ensuring that we're supporting people with the additional barriers and hurdles that are in place Mm. to everything from interview um, support, personal statement support, from thinking um, about mentoring programs, about work experience and caring experience opportunities to support people on reflective learning, because all of these are things that are tools that they will need to overcome to get a place onto a program. And I suppose what you're referring to there is sort of the fact that you could have two very equally able students, but where the bits around that, the facilitation for them to almost show off that they can do these things or have certain qualities, that's the kind of variable bit that you're trying to to equalise. Absolutely. From some of our work in the past where we've analysed where the barriers are, it has been around communication skills. For instance, if we're measuring somebody's ability to problem solve or to have ethical reasoning, if you can't communicate those attributes, 
in an interview setting, you're not going to score highly. And so it may be simply the development of confidence and communication skills in an interview setting that somebody needs rather than any further assistance around their ethical reasoning or their problem solving or their ability to reflect on team working or their motivation into the career. It's actually a very specific skill set of communicating in an interview that once that's overcome can be the determinant between success and failure. Absolutely. And not even just the, the skills to be able to communicate that, but the, the knowledge almost that that is needed to be communicated, if that makes so so from a personal perspective, I came in um, kind of having to work these things out for myself, you know, like maybe I need to mention this because or maybe I need to. So even though perhaps your interview is the same and you're tested on the same things, two students may not come into that as prepared as each other in the sense that one may have been suggested or, you know, told that actually you should prove this and you should prove that. However, the other one has all those qualities, you know, however, just doesn't know that you want to know that, you know, as an interviewer. Yeah, absolutely. I am um, in the days when we had face to face open days, or oh, I miss those days. I, one of the things I used to say in my talk is that getting into medical school is like learning to play a game. And the rules of the game are different from each institution. And sometimes they're not clear. I think collectively across the medical schools we've made huge inroads into that over the last few years the medical schools council website has got information sheets about each stage of the process it's got helpful guidance and support notes the studying healthcare website which is in conjunction with health education england has different video and learning materials to support individuals because Actually, if you're from a school or college where they are not used to sending people to medical school, then they won't have the tools there ready to support you as an individual to do that. So what we need to try and do is ensure that there is equity in the information that's available and there's transparency so that it isn't doesn't become a learning behavior that certain schools know how to teach people to play the rules and play the game so their pupils get in. We need to ensure that anybody, regardless of their school type and their background, has got access to um, information that they can refer to, to allow them to know, as you say, that we want to hear about XYZ, these are the skills and attributes that we'll be asking you about. These are the tools that you have to um, tell us about those things. So, hopefully, the Medical Schools Council information and our individual websites have been a, a huge benefit to the um, applicant pool as a whole. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, all, all those resources of the collection just, you know, sound brilliant to, to prepare students. and. What you were saying then is really interesting about that almost cycle of exclusivity almost that could arise if, if it's not being spotted of, of schools almost getting, getting good at it, you know, getting good at getting students into medicine. And within that, I suppose, then becomes advantages such as having peers in medicine and, you know, having predecessors that have also been in medicine, siblings and, and all that kind of environment that adds the advantage yes 
I think network and peer support or near peer support is really important. And so a number of universities have mentoring schemes where the undergraduate students mentor widening participation students and collectively they've come together to be part of a joint program called Bright Medics, which is sort of enabling universities to use different materials collectively. So in other words, we're not all doing the same wheel of creating resource, creating training materials. By working collectively, we're actually sharing best practice between institutions, we're learning from each other, we're learning about different approaches to support, and that dialogue between the institutions is essential so that we are collectively mapping, for instance, we have um, a map that is carried out every two years to look at the outreach interventions across the country. And it looks at cold spots. And so it looks at areas of the country and individual schools that are not receiving support from different organisations. And therefore, there are then calls, for instance, there's a call for um, tender for bids for summer school activity this year. And they are asking specifically, how are you going to target these areas? And so it's about that collective, non-competitive nature of support that I think people don't realise that the medical schools do. They think perhaps that we're up against each other and we only want people to apply to us. I don't mind where somebody applies. I just want to support an individual. I also think that some of the greatest successes are actually allowing people to understand medicine isn't a career for them. So by providing work experience opportunities, um, we had a flagship work experience program that then was piloted in Leeds and went out across the four devolved nations and um, more than 20 medical schools were involved, providing experiences in general practice. And actually some of the greatest success stories for me were people that actually learned about the different roles in healthcare and said, actually, I didn't know what a practice nurse did. Actually, that seems a better fit for me, and I'm going to go down that route. So it's about um, trying to support people at different stages on their career trajectory and making, helping them to make empowered decisions. There's so much you said there that kind of gives a really nice overview of almost how bogged down people can get as well with this process and the competitiveness of getting into medicine and everything like that. And it does maybe put more restriction on on who can who can get in and whether you're I mean you mentioned regions as well and that's the same it becomes a game and unfairness almost of just where you end up but when you actually take a step back and look at it more as a career it becomes a lot more simple you know would you like to be in medicine you should be able to give it a go perhaps it is all about identification of barriers and reduction of barriers and support that is the most important thing we can't solve social inequities prior to university we can't solve the divide that is in place academically for different groups of individuals but we can solve our own um, support and advice that we give to individuals that runs in parallel with their curricular activities in school and college and we can solve the barriers that are in place for them to go through the hurdles 
through the application process. And support doesn't stop there because we know that there are different types of support that are required for different cohorts of students within our organisation. And that doesn't stop at the point that they enter their, our programme. And it doesn't even stop once they graduate from us. So it's about identifying, working with individuals to provide them with a basket of support that is optional for them to take. And I think some people like to be identified by their background and some people want to merge into the collective student body and community and would be mortified if people were putting a label on them. And therefore, it's about offering opportunities, but not making them compulsory. Mm. Yeah, a really important point to note, really, that not for everybody, this won't be a, an ideal situation. They won't want to be, you know, offered additional support and want to get in I just want to take you before we lose it right back to the beginning when you were talking about identification and identifying this problem because you, you've done a brilliant job of describing a lot of the work that medical school counsellors is, is continuing to do but this wasn't always the case was it you know like we have this stereotypical image of a medical student or or doctors even for a reason you know for a long time medicine did have this sort of exclusive reputation and I just wonder if there was something particular that kind of changed it or opened people's eyes a little bit to to the issue or it's just been an ongoing. So I think there was a key tipping point for the Medical Schools Council which was due to Alan Milburn report which again cited so that was the social mobility report again citing um, medicine as one of the closed off professions the medical schools council was very reactive to that and commissioned research into what barriers were in place what evidence was already out there and in fact i led one of the commissioned research projects which was specifically around trying to get some true evidence around the barriers around widening participation and work experience activity and together the commissioned research was pulled into a paper called selecting for excellence which was launched in the house of lords in 2014 and from that the Medical Schools Council Selection Alliance was reformed with key objectives. And those objectives are reported on annually and move with the times. So there are data experts in there, there are psychometricians, there are admissions experts like myself, there are widening participation and outreach officers, there are a whole number of people that are working together on key objectives that require you know very targeted activity so health education england has been key to providing funding for some of the interventions that are in place and it has made us more directional collectively and i think less inward looking as organizations and much more collaborative in our whole system approach i think to what we're doing. Some of the most valuable things are chatting to other people about what they're doing and thinking, gosh, I think that might be something that works here. And actually getting individuals 
like yourself from medical schools to come and talk to us to tell us what they think is important because actually the most important thing is the student voice and the applicant voice if we're not responding to that if we're not allowing people the time to have the space to voice their concerns to voice what their experiences were of the system then actually we're not listening and we're doing what we think is best rather than what actually in reality is what's needed. Perhaps a, a reason to, to some of the problems in the past, maybe that now the difference is that these conversations are just being had, you know, and may have been an exclusive kind of problem in that sense, because as you say, it, it is so easy, I think, in the profession, especially one like medicine, to keep things in that bubble almost and to keep issues, you know, circulating around circulating around the same cohort. So no, it, it's really brilliant to kind of hear that that bubble has been burst and that, yeah, action is, is being taken. Which brings us nicely on to why, you know, is it important? Is, you know, some may say just, just why do we need to put this big effort in? We have an obligation to recruit healthcare professionals that are representative of the society that they will be looking after. People find it easier to build and easiest to build rapport with people like themselves. If you have doctors that are all from one class of society or one demographic group or one representation of a narrow society, then there will be other individuals, other patients that will not relate to them. They also, you're doing this project because it's important to you and that is because of your background. We all take forward things that are important to us. So everything from medical research, interventionals for um, inequalities in health, some of those drives will be from people from those individual backgrounds. If we're not selecting in that diversity, then that inherent voice and drive and may be lost. So again, actually, it can impact on the quality of patient care from the communication side right back to the research into um, the most appropriate interventions for different conditions in different medical groups. Fantastic. And actually, it really made me think when you said it um about it during your introduction actually about having a background in in general practice because i think even if practitioners maybe hadn't shown too much interest in widening participation most people are aware of the general practice shortage and problems we've had in that region in the past and i just wonder if there is a link in that you know in that actually getting people to kind of go back into a community is hard if they've never come from there you know absolutely and there obviously there are some research papers out there that show that um, many people return to where they were originally from and so actually where they end up living and working if, even if they think they're never going to many people go back to the very close to where they're originally from and so particularly from under doctored areas, there could be that vicious cycle of actually not recruiting from areas because people aren't having maybe the interaction or the outreach activities or the support because there are fewer doctors there. Maybe the doctors there have got less time to provide outreach and ambassadorial roles to role model to individuals in that society. So we need to 
you know, help put interventions in place there to make sure that we're aspiration raising and aspiration raising start at primary school. So one of my most recent interventions um, has actually been using GP trainees to facilitate sessions um, with um, primary school children. And so we've got an online interactive um, primary school activity book that's about informing them about different aspects of health and different roles in healthcare. And it's a, it crosses different aspects of the curriculum, but it's starting those conversations early and it's making people realize that actually they can aspire to be a healthcare professional of tomorrow, but they can only do that if they can view themselves in that role and have an understanding that we're just all people. There's no magic in it and we're not scary and we're there to support them. So we need to start right from key stage one, going all the way through to get people from all um, areas of society wanting to bang on our door and come and join our courses. It's just brilliant because you're right, there is that element of it that is that, that there is a divide, you know, that it's untouchable for some people, that it's almost I could never be that, you know, that thing that is a doctor. Whereas, like you say, it, at the end of the day, it, it's, a, it's a career that anybody could be inspired to do. And it, and it makes me think, actually, the other day I had a really interesting discussion with one of the consultant heptobiliary surgeons I think something he said really interested me about the um, language that is used during medical practice there's still an extremely high amount of jargon and latin and all sorts that's used and he actually mentioned that as something that contributes to that view of a doctor that people think oh you know that's something different well you're right you know when you look at some of the things right belonging into individual professions professions are really good at doing that making themselves sound really clever by having their own terminology and their own language and so when I listen to people talking about various aspects of engineering or their roles some of the terms they're using I'm thinking gosh I've got no idea what they're talking about now I've got to the stage in life I don't mind saying when I don't know but actually when you're you know, young, you're less likely to say, I really don't understand what you're talking about, because you don't want it to be seen as a reflection of your intelligence. And actually, being able to challenge people and say, what on earth are you talking about? What are you saying? Is a really important aspect of life that comes with age, I think, when maybe we get to a time in life where we're not so worried about people's impression of who we are by um, almost challenging the terminology and the phrasing that they're using. But definitely one in medicine where, you know, from a from a young and inexperienced outlook, you know, from primary or secondary school children to, to hear some of the language used could very well be off-putting, you know, as a career perspective to think, oh, that's not the type of person I am, you know. And, and I guess that goes into, I mean, we've talked a lot about even primary school, which is brilliant but that admissions and applications but more maybe as in your professional and your you know clinical work do you think there's work to be done higher up as well you know this whole language used in the profession and aspects of the career as a whole possibly even the working time frame and things like that is that exclusive still in a way do you think 
or do you think it's just that kind of gate to get in? As I said before, we have to be responsive to what our stakeholders require. So that inclusive nature of how we're delivering the course and the outcomes we're expecting from our graduates is really important too. I think the aspects around use of language and lay terms and um, a true understanding and and shared decision making has moved on dramatically. We had two sessions of communication training as an undergraduate and neither of those were interactive. And when I look now at the amount of communication skills and consultation skills and shared decision making training that's in our undergraduate curriculum, gosh, how haven't we moved on? But it doesn't mean that we should stop still and we should still challenge what we're doing part of that is ensuring that our patients have a clear voice in the design and delivery of our curriculum and so we have a patient carer community that help on all aspects of our course they're involved in everything from admissions all the way through to the final year oskis the final exams and everything in between so they do a lot of facilitation of small group work and I think that is a key to success it's about a co-production model that we have where it's patients it's students it's clinicians and it's academics and researchers all working together to determine what is the best way of delivering and assessing a course that makes it fit to have the um, healthcare professionals of tomorrow that we want to ha- want to be looked after by. One of the first slides I have on my open day presentation is a word cloud from the General Medical Council's Good Medical Practice. And the word cloud shows that it's not about knowledge. It's not about um, skills. People want doctors who are treating them with dignity, with empathy, who are listening to them, who are communicating with them, who are working collectively in a team to provide them with the best care. So we need to listen to our patients and understand what they want. That then informs our educational undergraduate curriculum and our postgraduate curricula, and it informs our admissions processes. We use those um, non-academic attributes and we try to measure potential in the individuals at the point of entry to our programmes. And actually, as you say, it kind of all stems back from that change really as well then, that it's very easy to measure in terms of applications and admissions if certain students have hit certain grades. But the minute it's changed into what sort of practitioner are you, what sort of person are you, that also enables a whole range of people to come into the the profession, you know, it not just being about academic achievement. Well, at Leeds, we cap our highest offer and our highest scoring system are three A's at A-level. Get nothing more for an A-star in our scoring system, getting nothing more for a fourth A-level. Because I know that it is not straight A star students that make the best doctors. It is about students, yes, do need a certain level of intelligence to cope with the rigours of the course. They probably actually need more organisational skills than anything else rather than metric of intelligence being a particular grade in a particular subject. But it's all those non-academic 
attributes that will make them the best doctors of tomorrow and it is therefore our obligation as admissions tutors to make sure that we are thinking as widely as we can about the evidence that people will bring to the table of their experience in particular areas that will be very inclusive of allowing people to demonstrate different things from different backgrounds. And I think that's a really nice kind of summary way to to end on really that we've noticed that that change has happened. We've noticed what's important in medicine. And now, as you say, it's just about identifying the people that can meet that, but also how we best get them in. Is there anything else you'd like to add to our conversation or that people should maybe think about? I don't think so. I think it's a conversation that will never stop and so you know we always need to keep challenging ourselves and actually conversations like this are hugely useful to me because it helps me think it helps me focus on what is important it helps me maybe pause and think next time I'm doing xyz I can reflect back on our conversation today but it's definitely something really important to keep high in the agenda. I'd like to give thanks once again to Dr Nichols for joining me in this discussion and thank you for listening to this Medicine 360 podcast this time on Class Divide in Medicine. If you would like to read more about this theme or the range of other interactions between medicine and the humanities more podcasts and information can be found at Medicine 360.